Ah, winter break. A time for baking cookies, reading by the fire, and relaxing snowy walks through the pine trees. Ah! <laughs> or at least these walks are supposed to be relaxing. All, all the snow and wind came out of nowhere, and it looks like I'm stuck in a blizzard. While I trudge my way back to the warmth of my cabin, let's try to enjoy the snow with a winter-themed tumble road trip. We hope you enjoy. Uh, uh, hold on. Is, is that a seal? You know, for, for everything I've seen on these road trips, I really shouldn't be surprised. I guess up next is the great seal count. Hi, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Welcome to Tumble, the show where we explore stories of science discovery. Today, we're discovering how to count the cutest seals on the planet from your own home. The cutest seals, you say? Yep, they live in Antarctica, and they look like puppies with fins instead of legs. <laughs> oh, that's cute. So how do we count seals, and why? That's what we're about to find out. When I called up Leo Salas, a scientist who helped lead the first ever global count of Weddell seals, I asked the hardest question first. What are Weddell seals and why are they so cute? They're like the cutest seals on the planet. Well, uh, so yes, they're the cutest <laughs> of all these seals. There are, as you know, many oh, kinds of seals. come on. I feel like you just set him up to say that Weddell seals are the cutest seals on the planet. Well, he agreed with me right away, so <laughs> I figure he's right. <laughs> <laughs> all right. <laughs> and Weddell seals are undeniably adorable. They have big puppy-like eyes, long whiskers, smushy faces, and chunky furry bodies. <laughs> so, so are they certified chunksters? Definitely. Weddell seals are one of the most famous species in Antarctica, maybe because they photograph so well. Because they're so far south and nothing else lives over there, they're super friendly. So you can take those beautiful pictures. So kind of like a fashion photographer going like, Seals, look over here, baby. You're beautiful. You're beautiful. Work that blubber. <laughs> Work it. If you got it, flaunt it. <laughs> Even though seals don't mind having their photos taken, very few people are allowed to get close enough to photograph them. The animals in Antarctica are protected. You cannot just walk up to them. Besides, it's a very, very, very dangerous place. So you're saying these seals are dangerously cute. Yes, especially the babies, or as I like to call them, the Whittle Weddles. <laughs> Weddle seals go to the same patch of ice every year to have their adorable babies. And they're very, very far south. No other mammal breeds as far south as the Whittle seal. So they're like the ultimate southerners. Yes, scientists have studied these seals for many years, but no one knows quite how many there are and if their numbers are going up or down. That's why Leo and other scientists wanted to count them. We want to know what are the chances that something that we do, humans do, may cause the seals to be affected one way or another. Okay, so let me see if I get this. Counting seals can help us understand if something humans are doing is helping or hurting the seals. Exactly. But how could we be hurting seals? I mean, most of us don't live anywhere near Antarctica. 
That's true. But we may be eating one of the seal's favorite foods. It's called the toothfish. The toothfish is that like just like a tooth with fins? <laughs> <laughs> that would be hilarious, but no. As far as I can tell, it's called that because it has teeth. <laughs> but toothfish isn't the name that most people know this fish by. If you go to the market, they will not call it toothfish because that's too ugly a name. They call it Chilean sea bass. Really? I feel like I've seen Chilean sea bass on the menus of restaurants. It's like really expensive fish, and you get it in fancy places where waiters have ties. <laughs> but it's neither sea bass and most certainly nor Chilean. <laughs> but they call it that because it sounds like, you know, when you go, it's Chilean sea bass. Wow. So Leo's saying seals eat this fish as toothfish, but we eat it as a Chilean sea bass, which is not where it's from, nor the kind of fish that it is. That's correct. If you see a Chilean sea bass, in most cases, it came from Antarctica. And that fact makes a big difference to the seals, because this fish isn't just a fancy treat to them. It's an important meal that feeds their families. This fish is big. It can grow up to six feet or more and weigh, you know, a lot of pounds. Wait, so how many pounds is a lot of pounds? Like 10? <laughs> no, they can get up to almost 300 pounds or 135 kilograms. That's like two people. The seals, which are, you know, big animals, they're four meters long, uh, 12 feet or more. They can grab that fish and eat it. Okay, wow. So, like, everything here is much bigger than I thought. It's a huge seal eating a huge fish. Yes, the toothfish are twice as big as any other fish nearby. Those fish, to grow that big, they eat other fish. Recently, scientists have noticed something about these smaller fish that the toothfish eats. There's more of them than there used to be. So we know that something is being altered in the food web. Wait, so what's a food web? A food web is all the connections between living things in an ecosystem through feeding. So like, who's eating who? Exactly. It's a delicate balance. Leo and other scientists suspected that humans were tipping it off by becoming toothfish's new predators. But to find out, they needed to know if the number of seals go down as more toothfish, or Chilean sea bass, are fished. So it's like a scale. As one end goes up, the other end goes down. Exactly. But getting a clear picture in a complex food web is easier said than done. It is kind of like trying to figure out how many socks are in the drawer. And it's a very, 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 very big drawer. And you're almost blind. And you're wearing mittens. I mean, that's what I do every morning. So I have no problem understanding what he's talking about. Just got to get the blindfold on, put on the mittens, and count the massive drawer full of socks. <laughs> I always think that really slows down your morning. <laughs> Just got to wake up four hours earlier. It's important those socks get counted. <laughs> But what Leo is really saying is that there's so much we don't understand about how this food web works. Getting an accurate seal count is the first step to removing the blindfold. Yeah, isn't the number of animals like the first thing you want to know about big famous animal species? Like when you open up the zoo book, there's always 10,000 to 30,000 in Africa. Weddell seals have proved hard to count because of their environment. We cannot do it in person. We cannot go and fly or sail to where they are because it's very dangerous, very, very dangerous. 
Oh yeah, so that, yeah, there's the slippery ice and all that, and the like bitter cold. <laughs> right. Scientists had attempted to count the seals before, but Leo had reason to believe that the last count was too high. There was an estimate of the abundance of the seals in the entire continent based on counts made by helicopter. Counting by helicopter? That sounds cooler than counting on land, for sure. They flew over areas that they knew they would find seals. They counted a number, and then they estimated, oh, there may be 800 to 900,000 seals. The heli counters flew over a couple of areas with seals, took photos, and counted them. Then they multiplied that out over the rest of the continent. The problem is that that's not how seals are found on the ice. They clump. In other words, there's not an equal amount of seals across every part of Antarctica. So Leo suspected that that number, 800 to 900,000, was an overestimate. Okay, it's like if you were to estimate how many people live in America by counting people in New York City and multiply that by how many New York cities could fit in America, and that would be, like, way too many people. Exactly. Leo and his colleagues wanted to correct that number. One of them, a scientist named Dr. Michelle LaRue, had a new idea. She said, Hey, let's take these satellite pictures and count them there. Satellite pictures are taken all the way from space. But if you zoom way in, you can see Weddell seals. They look like Whittle Gray commas. <laughs> <laughs> Cutest punctuation ever. <laughs> yes, but this idea had a Whittle problem. Okay, that's great, but there are thousands and thousands and thousands of pictures, and that, that's also a lot of work. Yeah, looking for little gray commas in thousands of photos would get really tiring, I think. So the scientists decided to ask for help. So she said, okay, let's see if people around the world, if we give them the photos, could they count for us? Wait, so how would that work? Would people just like stand on the street corner and hand out copies of satellite images being like, help us count the seals? Won't you help us count the seals? <laughs> These aren't just people on the street. They're citizen scientists who are regular people, but they want to help scientists collect data. And they do it from the comfort of their own homes and in their communities. All they had to do was sign up on a website and click through the images. And so that's what we did. The scientists put 20,000 satellite images on a website that was created to, get this, Find the tomb of Mongolian ruler Genghis Khan. What? <laughs> this story just took a turn. So what does Genghis Khan's tomb have to do with seals? Are seals, like, hanging out by the tomb? No. <laughs> Is he buried in Antarctica? How'd they get there? No. Believe it or not, you can find signs of both seals and hidden tombs through satellite images. The tomb hunters created the Citizen Science website. Then they opened it up to scientists around the world. That's so cool. But please, I need to know, did anyone find Genghis Khan's tomb? They did find many tombs, but none of them is the one they were looking for. Well, that's something. So tomb hunting and seal counting are really not so different. <laughs> Apparently not. <laughs> Back to the seals, tons of people signed up to be Antarctic citizen scientists. From home. And they went in there and they clicked and said, oh, I see a seal here, and I see a seal here, and I see a seal there, and we got those numbers. 
Many hands make light work, or many eyes count seals faster, as the saying goes. <laughs> so how many seals were there? About 200,000 in the entire continent. Well, so that's a lot less than eight to 900,000. So now that they have that number, like, what comes next? What do they do with it? They'll try to predict the changes in the food web by comparing their seal count to the number of toothfish caught by fishing boats. If we know how many fish you're removing, we can say, oh, there should be this many fewer seals. Then they can do a similar thing for other Antarctic species, like penguins or orcas. Oh, I get it. So it's a way to connect the dots between different species in the ecosystem and try to understand how our being in the food web affects all of them. Exactly. And if the scientists find that our fishing is affecting the seals, it might change how many toothfish people can catch. Or how much Chilean sea bass we eat. Yeah, and that's possible thanks to citizen scientists. Leo told me he was seriously impressed with their work. I was humbled by this experience in knowing that there are so many people who are so careful and motivated and inspired to do an amazing job. It's, it's incredible. Wow, so it doesn't take a fancy science degree to help do seal science. Just the skill of clicking on screens, which, honestly, we're all getting a lot of practice at. <laughs> we are. Leo says citizen science is also a way to get involved with conservation, protecting Earth for future generations. And so long we provide the means for people to do so, they learn more, they care more, they participate more, and they protect more. So that's my hope. I bet the Whittle Seals hope that people protect more too. Yeah, from a safe, non-slippery distance. So you may have heard some interesting sounds in the music in this episode. Sounds like this one. That sound is actually from a Weddell seal. It sounds like something out of science fiction, but these are actually seal sounds that they make underwater to communicate. Now can you hear the seals in the music? I, I hope you enjoyed the great seal count. As for myself, I'm trying to count how many of my toes are dumb. <laughs> Seeing nothing but snow makes me wonder, A, why is it so darn cold out? And B, what's the science behind the beautiful yet freezing science of snow? Up next, the people of the snow. <laughs> I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Welcome to Tumble, the show where we explore stories of science discovery. This week, we're learning about snow. That white stuff that mysteriously falls from the clouds when it's cold. We'll hear how scientists are combining forces with people whose lives depend on snow to understand how snow is changing as the world gets warmer.
Hello, my name is Owen Smith. I am six, and I'm from Reno, Nevada. My questions are: How is snow made, and why does it snow in certain parts of the country? Hi, I'm Stella Peterson, and I'm ten years old, and I have a question for you: Why are snowflakes not the same size or shape? It's probably not a coincidence that we're getting lots of questions about snow right now. When everybody's walking around in their snow pants <laughs> and snowshoes, and the East Coast is、uh, under a very thick blanket of blizzard. It seemed kind of random to me at first because it never snows here, and I can't tell the difference between the seasons. That's true. It's just there's hot, and then there's like less hot. I miss snow a lot. You know, I have to say, I do not miss it at all. <laughs> I grew up with plenty of snow. I'm fine with the fact that I never see it anymore. Don't you love skiing and sledding and making snowballs? You know what else I like is going outside in a t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> That's nice. But you have to admit that snow feels kind of magical. That is true. It is beautiful when you get that first snow. Yeah, and of course, there's a science to it. To answer Owen and Stella's questions, I called Kelly Elder, a scientist with the U.S. Forest Service, who's been obsessed with snow since he was a kid. I waited all summer for the next winter. <laughs> so I guess he doesn't like going outside in a t-shirt. <laughs> he loves snow, and that's why he became a hydrologist, a person who studies the water cycle. Snow is one of the three phases of water. What happens in the atmosphere is you have lots of water molecules floating around by themselves in gas or vapor form. Up in the clouds, these lonely water molecules are looking for friends, and they look for little nucleating particles. Nucleating particles are tiny specks of dust or other solids floating around with the water molecules. When it's cold and moist, they make great friends because they give the water molecules something solid to latch onto. And then, as soon as one locks on, another one locks onto it, and it forms a crystal. A crystal? Like, aren't those usually rocks? Snowflakes are crystals too, and just like the hard kind of crystal—diamonds <laughs> and quartz—they grow molecule by molecule into beautiful patterns. That's amazing, but what is the answer to Stella's question? Why are snowflakes not the same size or shape? So people talk about there being no two snowflakes alike. That's because if a single snow crystal is made up of millions and millions of molecules, there's millions and millions of ways that they can lock together. All right, I get it. So like millions of ways means that it's very unlikely that any two will be identical. Exactly. It's amazing to think about all the different patterns that snowflakes might make. They also change from the time that they form high in the atmosphere till the time that they hit the ground, because they go through lots of different conditions. So they'll grow and they'll start to shrink, and then they'll grow faster on one arm or two arms, or all the arms at the same time. Wait, so snowflakes are changing mid-air? I know that's like the coolest thing. <laughs> so the stuff that we see hitting the ground. Has millions and millions of options for the way it comes out. Okay, so there's millions of patterns. But to go back to Owen's question, why does it snow in some places but not others? Well, Earth's surface has to be cold enough to keep the water molecules frozen. It snows a lot in the atmosphere everywhere up high because the clouds are often frozen. But by the time it hits the Earth, it's melted again. So that's when we get rain. Exactly. 
So a lot of rain is actually starting in snow. But what happens in higher latitudes is you get farther and farther away from the equator, or in the United States, as you go farther north, you get into colder air temperatures. In cold places, snow makes the journey all the way from the clouds to your outstretched mittens. Or tongue, or feet, or body. Or all the way onto the ground. Where you can make a snow angel. Or a snowman. The farther you go north, the longer the snow stays on the ground. Well, so we live here in Texas, where if there's like a quarter inch of snow on the ground, they declare a state of emergency and shut everything down. But, you know, I grew up in Chicago, where you only had a snow day if you literally could not open your door because there was so much snow piled up against it. I know it's hard to believe, but there are places that are even colder and snowier than Chicago. Places like Minneapolis or Syracuse, New York. (laughs) It might be cold in those places, but temperatures are rising in higher latitudes. And that's because of climate change, right? Yes. Our global climate is getting warmer. Scientists agree that climate change is caused by things we're doing, like burning coal and driving cars. These things are changing our planet's natural weather patterns and not for the better. It means big changes for snow on Earth. It's warmer, so we're getting more of the precipitation in the form of rain. That's because when temperatures rise, it's not cold enough to keep the snowflakes as snow. Right, and so a warmer climate means less snow. Snow season starts later and ends earlier in the winter. Most of us are noticing this change as just something weird. But for the Inuit, who are the native people living in the farthest northern places of the U.S. and Canada, it's a huge difference from past years. Our winters change a little bit here. Their winters are changing a lot up there. They're seeing more changes that are happening faster. They're really living climate change up there. And climate change has a more profound effect on them. The Inuit culture, like everything they do and how they live, relies on a long frozen winter. Like building igloos and dog sledding? Yeah, and during the winter, they're traveling long distances to go hunting for their traditional foods. Animals like walrus, seal, and caribou. Snow cover covers up things that are hard to travel, and it gives them ice to travel on frozen water. Without snow and ice... Their dogs tear up their feet on rocks, and their snowmobiles get wrecked. Oh, because it's not like they have, like, lots of roads up there. Exactly. So traveling on frozen land is a big part of their traditional way of life. That's also why they have their own traditional science. Their own science? The Inuits have their own science, and they have a very long tradition of, of a high level of understanding of snow and weather and climate. So what does that mean? Like, do they do experiments and talk about Star Trek? <laughs> <laughs> Not exactly. They have a way of making very specific weather predictions for their area, as well as places that are far from home. They're very, very good weather forecasters. It's the same kind of thing that our weather forecasters would do with a computer and with models and with instruments. And they can walk outside and look at the sky and say, in two days we will have north winds and lots of snowfall. And it's not just that there will be snow, they'll know what kind of snow and how it might affect their travel plans. Okay, so they're thinking about science in terms of what they need to understand day to day to live in such an extreme environment. 
Exactly. For most of their history, Inuit science existed completely independent of what we call Western science. But the Inuits began to discover that their predictions weren't as accurate as they'd always been. We started studying with them because they were looking for answers to changes that they were seeing that they couldn't explain. Kelly and other scientists were eager to team up with the Inuit. They also wanted to understand the changes that the Inuit were seeing, but they needed more information about what climate had been like in the past in order to predict the future. We don't have very much data from northern latitudes because we just started studying there. So their knowledge combined with Western science is a really good combination for learning about global climate. The Inuit had that data, but it didn't come in numbers or spreadsheets. Did did they make spreadsheets in the snow and ice (laughs) using a chisel, say? (laughs) I wonder what kind of formulas you would have. Well, their data was in their oral tradition, stories passed down through generation after generation, telling of long winters and snow conditions and sea ice, and scientists would sit with villagers and interview them. Wow, so scientists are able to turn your stories into years and numbers? Yeah, it's not like the science we know of taking precise measurements with instruments, But Kelly's team recognized that the Inuit did have that information, just a different way of knowing about it and communicating it. That's really cool. So the Inuit lent their scientists some of their science. And the scientists lent the Inuit some of theirs. So one of the things we did with with the Inuit is select locations for some weather stations that are way outside of town. These remote weather stations are in places that Inuit often travel, but couldn't confidently predict anymore. Now they collect measurements for wind and weather conditions. And then they are broadcast by satellite back to town. They can say to themselves, well, I think it's probably really windy uh, 100 kilometers north of town today. And then they can look at the data and see that, yes, in fact, it is, or it's not as windy as they thought. So just as climate is changing and snow is changing, Inuit science is changing too. And the Inuits are trying to adapt. Right. It's really hard, but science has some tools to help. And it sounds like scientists are learning a lot from it too. The Inuit have been wonderful to work with because they've taught me so much about snow. And it's not like I just started studying it yesterday and I'm learning things that I never thought I'd learn. I think we need more science like that. I've learned different ways of looking at the same things I've looked at. So if you live in a place where it snows, you can go outside and study it. You've probably looked at a snowflake that you've caught in your hand, but Kelly recommends getting a cheap magnifying glass, getting down on your belly. In your snow pants, because uh, you don't want to have water snoking through your jeans. (laughs) (laughs) So get your snow pants on and go look at snow on the ground. As soon as snow is on the ground, it starts to change. And people think of snow on the ground as this white cold stuff that all looks the same. Look at it through a magnifying glass. You'll see things that you'll be amazed at. There's all kinds of different shapes. They don't look like the ones falling out of the sky, but things happen on the ground that are quite profound and beautiful too. Kelly recommends keeping a journal of your snow observations year after year. You might notice changes in your own environment, just like the Inuit did. 
Send us your observations, drawings, photographs, and questions. You could even try to send us snow, but it'll probably melt before it gets here. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed the people of the snow. All the talk of climate change in the episode really connects well with our next episode, The Power of the Pika Scientists. Pikas are cute, they're furry, and unlike me, they love the snow. Hi, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Welcome to Tumble, the show where we explore stories of science discovery. We're taking you to Pika Town. Won't you take me to Pika Town? <laughs> Pikas will be your new favorite animal if they're not already. They're like chipmunks, but somehow cuter. They're helping scientists study climate change. We'll meet one pika scientist who turned a natural disaster into an important discovery. So you know Pikachu from Pokemon? Yeah, but isn't this podcast about science for kids, not cartoons for kids? Hold on. It's relevant because pikas, the animal we're talking about today, are the inspiration for Pikachu. Oh, do they go pika pika and shoot lightning bolts? <laughs> no, but they do sound like this. Pikas live in mountainous areas in parts of Asia, Eastern Europe, and Western North America. In Salem, Oregon, 8th graders at the Jane Goodall Environmental Middle School study pikas in their conservation biology class. Vanessa, Kellen, and Caroline gave us a few quick pika facts. Pikas live on rocky slopes called taluses. Pikas like to walk and hop in between the big rocks. What I love about pikas is they're kind of small and cute, and they also have very weird tolerances to temperature where they don't like really hot temperature or really cold temperature. With climate change, scientists are worried about the snowpack that pikas use in the winter. So I'm picking up a pretty strong message here. Pikas live in the mountains. They're cute, cute as little buttons, but they're sensitive to climate change. Exactly. That's why the class has been helping a scientist named Pika Joe collect data to study pikas in their area. What a crazy coincidence with her name that she studies pikas. <laughs> well, her real name is Johanna Varner. She got the nickname after she started studying pikas. So we're going to learn about her research, but first, let's find out how one becomes pika anyone. <laughs> pika Jim or pika Tom. You could be pika Marshall. Well, I actually did not plan to become a pika ecologist. I actually studied for five years uh, as an engineer. After Johanna graduated from university, she knew she didn't really want to become an engineer. So she worked at a bakery and then traveled across the world, trying to figure out what she wanted to do with her life. Then one day, she picked up a newspaper and found her answer. And I read this newspaper article about pikas. And in the newspaper article, they had interviewed a woman who had studied them for her PhD. This woman was a pika scientist, and Johanna suddenly knew that's what she wanted to be, too. I thought, wait a minute, there are these people called ecologists, and they go camping and hiking, and they watch the pikas, and I love pikas. Johanna immediately wrote an email to the pika scientist. It basically went like this. 
Dear Dr. Deering, my name's Joe, and I really like pikas, and I would like to become a pika biologist, and I'm wondering what I should do. The pika scientist wrote back and said Johanna could come work with her. After two years of training, Johanna decided to go to school to get a PhD, which meant that she would be a pika scientist. Okay, so who doesn't want to spend time with adorable animals for the rest of their lives? But what does that mean? What do you even do? Cuddle? (laughs) Do you test their cuddling features? (laughs) Potentially. Well, like any kind of science, you ask questions, create hypotheses, and set up experiments. Johanna's favorite part is getting out into the mountains of the Pacific Northwest in North America to observe pikas. That's what she calls field work. When we're doing field work, we typically have really early mornings. That's because pikas are most active between 6 and 9 in the morning. Armed with coffee and breakfast bars, Johanna and her crew get up to visit them. Sometimes we have to hike in pretty far, sometimes not so far, to get to a site and sort of set up shop. I bring a little cushion that I can sit on on the rocks. How does she know where to find pikas? Well, pikas have what we call a tell. Like when you know when they have a good poker hand? Yeah. Each pika has its own little territory of a wide circle on a rock slide. They have a hidden stockpile of plants to get them through the winter, but they all have the same hiding place, and Johanna knows where to find it. Typically, they're under the biggest rock in the rock slide, so typically you'll go to the biggest rock in the rock slide and you look under it, and if you find plants, then you know that there's a pika that's active there. So pikas are actually kind of bad at hiding their stuff. But why is it important to study pikas? In addition to being extremely cute, pikas are also really valuable indicators of the health of alpine ecosystems. That means pikas can tell us about the other plants and animals that live in their mountain habitat and how they all work and live together. You mean like they'll send little dispatches from the mountains? May 3rd, saw some bugs, ate some tasty plants. Unfortunately, no. It's about how pikas behave in response to change. So they're sensitive sometimes to changes in temperature or changes in snowpack. And for those reasons, we can, we can study pikas to learn more about how ecosystems are changing. Well, that's exactly what the students said. Scientists are worried about how changing ecosystems, meaning climate change, impact pikas. Climate change is affecting a lot of animal species, not just polar bears. The temperatures in the mountains are getting warmer, and rain and snow isn't as predictable as it used to be. Scientists noticed that the number of pikas in certain areas were shrinking, or even disappearing. Oh, that's really sad. Yeah, it is. But there's also something strange about how it's happening. Pikas are really interesting because it's not really happening the same all over their range. What does that mean? Well, in some places, pikas are doing just fine. So you mean if pikas who live on one mountain are doing fine, the ecosystem there is probably okay. But if they've disappeared off another mountain, it means the whole mountain is in trouble? Yeah. And that's what it means for pikas to be an indicator species. And why pikas are more than just another adorable furry face. Right. So when Johanna went to set up her first study as a pika scientist, she chose one site where pikas seem to be doing all right. Mount Hood, a giant volcanic mountain in Oregon. 
So she hiked out there, found the pika stockpile, sat down on a cushion. Right, the whole drill. It was a beautiful summer, and Johanna planned to go back the next year and see how the pikas did over the winter. But then something unexpected happened. What I discovered is that in September of 2011, shortly after I had left, there was a big wildfire that swept across the whole north face of Mount Hood, and it burned up um, most but not all of the sites where I had placed temperature sensors and had been observing the behavior of pikas. Oh no! The places where she'd spent her mornings hanging out with pikas were now charred and burned. Johanna was devastated. First thing that I did was kind of curl up into a ball cry. You know, say sad things like, my PhD just went up in flames. So was everything ruined? Did she just have to start over? Well, after she uncurled herself from the ball position, she started to see things differently. I came to realize that this was actually a real opportunity to study how fires affect pikas. Um, We're seeing changes across the American West. Fires are becoming more frequent and more intense. And those changes are predicted to occur exactly in the places where we find pikas. Wow. So fires are another big part of climate change. And she just changed her study to look at that. She hadn't planned on it, but because she set up her study before the fire, she had a really unusual opportunity. What's really cool about that is that understanding kind of the fundamental requirements for a species' habitat to be, you know, able to support that species is something that's really difficult to do in ecology. So the fire could help her figure out what pikas need in order to live somewhere? Exactly. And it's usually so hard to do because ecosystems are so complex. It's hard to know exactly how much of what they need to survive. But the pikas were starting from scratch and Johanna could watch. After the fire, she went back to the sites. There was very little to eat. Um, The rock slide itself was completely charred. You know, there was pretty much one elderberry bush for 30 feet from the rocks. And, you know, we found pikas living there. What? The pikas survived the fire? Yes. It was an incredible survival story. (laughs) These were the same pikas as before? How did they make it through a fire? The clue was in something else that survived the fire. Johanna's temperature sensors. Well, first I was very surprised that my data loggers had not been destroyed or melted. She picked them up and plugged them into her computer. They had measured the temperature nonstop throughout the fire. Um, but when I downloaded the data from those sensors, what I found was that the the temperatures in the rock slides down in the, the crevices where the pikas actually spend a lot of time, it never got above about 70 degrees. That's unbelievable. It's like a nice summer day temperature. I know. The rock slide served as a really great temperature buffer. The pika's own habitat had saved them. So when Johanna went back to observe them the next two summers, she discovered how they recovered from the fire. They just needed one thing, plants. It didn't seem to matter what plants were there. The pikas needed a certain number of plants per square foot, basically, in order to come back. And once there were that many plants per square foot, that's when we saw the pikas come back. So when a pika is out house hunting, it's like looking around like, oh, definitely going to need to repair that rock over there and uh, maybe move this so that we, we need a bigger rock moved in so that we can have something to hide under. Oh, but you know... We're right next to the plants. I think we'll take it. (laughs) 
They're very willing to deal with a fixer-upper. <laughs> it's a surprising and sort of heartening that, that at least in some times and some capacities, these animals have the ability to bounce back. It's also good news that the kind of plants doesn't matter because climate change might affect the type of vegetation that can survive in their habitat. It's support that vegetation changes as a result of climate change are not likely to be affecting pikas. If they are negatively affected by climate change, it's probably more likely that it's through changes in temperature or precipitation patterns. If pikas are affected, it's because of temperature and precipitation, how much rain and snow is in their environment. And it's helpful for scientists like Johanna to know what to focus on. Well, you know, I have a lot of hope for pikas here. Me too. Another cool thing is you don't have to be a pika scientist to help out with the pika science. If you live in areas where pikas live, or nearby, you don't have to live on top of the rock slide, you can collect data just by taking pictures. You can also submit observations of pikas, uh, including pictures and sound files, to a platform called iNaturalist. And there's an app that you can download, and there's actually a project on iNaturalist called the American Pika Atlas. That's so neat. So not only can you get total Instagram-worthy photos of furry adorableness, you can contribute to science. Everyone wins. Do you love spotting animals in your area? Take Johanna's suggestion and check out iNaturalist.org. It's really cool because you can keep track of your own nature observations and contribute to science about plants and animals, not just pikas. There's projects all over the world about everything from bees in North America to reptiles in Italy to flowers in Germany. Ask an adult to help you sign up, find a project, and become a naturalist. Let us know what you see by emailing us at tumblepodcast at gmail.com. I'm still quite cold, but you know what? I can see the cabin up there just a few feet away. In just a few more moments, I can warm up by the fire. It's safe to say that I would not do so well living in Alaska. So speaking of, here's another Alaskan story that will lead me home. Here comes the volcanic eruption adventure. Hi, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Welcome to Tumble, the show where we explore stories of science discovery. Today we're going on an adventure to the top of a volcano that's about to erupt. Really? That sounds, um, I don't know, dangerous? Don't worry, it's safe. We're following a scientist who studied the warning signs of volcanic eruptions on one of Alaska's biggest volcanoes. Well, in that case, buckle up and look out for some lava. Our guide to volcanic adventure is Helena Berman. Yeah, my name is Helena Berman and I'm a volcanologist. Helena will be taking us to the top of a volcano, but she's really focused on the action going on deep underneath it. I was studying the earthquakes that happen at volcanoes. So she's a, a volcanologist, which means she's studying volcanoes, but why is she studying earthquakes? Often they will tell us if the volcano is about to erupt. She works in a field of science called volcano seismology. And seismology is the study of earthquakes and the waves that move through the earth. Yeah, so volcano seismology is what you get when you put volcanoes and earthquakes together. 
like a little natural disaster salad. <laughs> exactly. Just add some olive oil and some vinegar. So delicious. <laughs> uh, so to travel to the top of this volcano, we're first going back in time to when Helena was a young volcano seismologist on eruption watch in 2008. I was at the Alaska Volcano Observatory and we watch all the volcanoes real close to see if any of them are waking up. Wait, so what's a volcano observatory? Is it like you sit behind a telescope and look at volcanoes from far away? <laughs> there are no telescopes there, but it does have lots of other kinds of special equipment. It measures volcanic activity and gives warnings to people nearby. There's only five volcano observatories in the U.S. in areas where there's lots of volcanoes around. So I guess that means there's lots of volcanoes in Alaska? So we have 54 volcanoes that are active, and we have a bunch more that are dormant. They're asleep, and they might be going extinct. I love the idea that volcanoes are just, like, asleep or waking up. It's like, oh, oh man, oh, time to explode. <laughs> but why are there so many there in Alaska? Well, Alaska may seem cold, but it's actually a real hot spot for volcanoes. Alaska is part of the ring of fire that goes around the Pacific Ocean. The ring of fire. The ring of fire is where 75% of the world's volcanoes and earthquakes happen. Uh, would you say it uh, burns, burns, burns? The ring of fire? <laughs> yes. It surrounds most of the Pacific Ocean. It's where pieces of Earth's crust, called tectonic plates, hit up against each other. They're colliding and pulling apart in a process of creation and destruction that's been going on since Earth formed. Meaning it makes volcanoes and earthquakes happen. And it's responsible for how Alaska looks on the map with its little hook of islands. All the way along the south coast of Alaska and out along the Aleutian Islands, they're called. Those are all volcanoes. But one of Alaska's most famous volcanoes is on the mainland. There's a volcano close to Anchorage called Mount Redoubt. You can see Mount Redoubt on the horizon from Alaska's biggest city. It's about 100 miles away. Redoubt is a composite volcano, also known as a stratovolcano. That means it has steep sides, and it's built out of a combination of ash, lava, and chunks of stone. Like all the stuff it throws up and then hardens, like that gross shirt you never cleaned. Exactly. And Redoubt is known to be active and potentially dangerous to people. And the last time Redoubt erupted, actually an airplane got caught in the ash cloud and nearly crashed. Oh my goodness. So somebody flew through a volcanic eruption and actually survived? Yeah, but you don't want to try that again. No, I do not. <laughs> That's why it's so important to have a volcano observatory to be able to give humans the heads up on eruptions that could affect many lives. Readout's first warning sign came in summer 2008. There were some geologists that were working up there. They make maps of the rocks. While the geologists were mapping away, they smelled something kind of funky. Like, uh, what kind of gas smell? Is this another fart joke opportunity? Oh, yeah. They started smelling a funny gas smell. They smell like rotten eggs. Okay, so the volcano's actually farting. 
The geologists went down to the Alaska Volcano Observatory and told Helena's team what they'd observed. That rotten egg smell turned out to be a major sign that Readout might be getting ready to erupt. And so then we started keeping a closer eye on Readout with the earthquakes happening there. Wait, so how do we go from smelling rotten eggs to earthquakes? That's a good question. Helena told me that earthquakes are a common warning sign that a volcano is active or awakening. Each volcano is its own personality. So there's some volcanoes that make hundreds of earthquakes every day, and that's just normal for them. When gas moves through the crust, it can make earthquakes. Yeah, so the gas is pushing its way through the ground, and that causes the earthquakes. Exactly. The other thing that can cause earthquakes is magma, the molten rock beneath Earth's crust. Magma has to break the crust to get out, and when the crust breaks, that makes earthquakes. Molten rock breaking the crust is so hardcore. I know, right? Magma is always flowing around beneath Earth's crust, but the movement of the tectonic plates pushes it up towards the surface, cracking the rock around it. That's why Helena was looking closely for earthquakes beneath readout. Very gradually, we started to see one or two earthquakes pretty deep below the volcano, which is unusual. Wait, but how do you see an earthquake? Don't you just feel them? Here's the thing. Even if you were standing right above one, you couldn't feel it. They're too small and deep underground. That's why scientists use a sensor that can measure earthquakes. It's called a seismometer. Seismometers are installed close to the volcano, and they send their data back to the volcano observatory. All of a sudden in January of 2009, I remember it, on the earthquake record, we started to see all this uh, activity, like we call it activity when the sensors kind of register the ground shaking a lot more. Helena was on duty when it started happening. And I remember checking the data and seeing this and thinking, "Uh uh-oh, that's not right. She quickly told the other volcanologists what was happening. Together, they decided, This is probably getting real now. Explosions are coming! Explosions are coming! But it still took some time. For a few more weeks, Helena and her fellow volcanologists watched the seismometer data very closely. Earthquakes were happening. They get closer and closer together in time. And that's what we call a swarm. Uh, an earthquake swarm? That sounds like, I don't know, maybe like a little worse than a Sharknado. <laughs> Definitely. And just like the rotten egg smell was the sign to start watching earthquakes, these swarms were the sign that it was time to plan a trip to the top of the volcano. So you see, that's funny, because for me, that sounds like it's exactly the time not to take a trip to the top of the volcano. In fact, to try to get a little further away from it if you can. (laughs) They needed to place the sensors in the heat of the action. If you have your sensor too far away, you don't really hear the earthquakes. You have to be right on top of the volcano. The sensors that measure the volcano year-round are far away from the crater itself. So the plan was to quickly fly out in a helicopter and put a bunch of seismometers around the top of the volcano just before the eruption. 
This is like just in case you didn't think scientists were actually action heroes. <laughs> Did they hang from the helicopter tread on their way down? <laughs> it's hard to land a helicopter on an Alaskan volcano at the end of winter, so it is pretty daring. The sky is dark and the weather is bad. The volcanologist had to wait for conditions to improve in order to drop off the sensors. By the time we were ready to do that, it had started doing its like final ramp up. Finally, a clear day arrived. Elena's team loaded their equipment into the helicopter and took off. They flew two hours to the very top of the volcano. So for us up there, it was just a beautiful day and we could see lots of steam coming out the top because it was, you know, there was heat coming up, melting the glacier. Helena enjoyed being on the snowy, steamy peak. She would have loved to spend the whole day up there. But back at the volcano observatory, nails were probably being bitten. Other volcanologists sat in front of screens, monitoring the signals that Helena couldn't feel or see. They're kind of like the uh, control room for a rocket launch. Yeah, a lot like that. If it looked like the volcano was about to blow, Helena's team would get a call to evacuate immediately. So they raced around the mountain, getting their work done as quickly as possible. Then they jumped back into the helicopter. As they took off, Helena was almost hoping that readout would blow. And I would have loved to see a big old boom come out of the volcano, but I didn't. 24 hours later, readout erupted. It sent a plume of ash and gas over 50,000 feet into the air. We were long gone by the time it exploded, but it exploded. Volcanic ash reached as far as Anchorage, and volcanic mud flows cascaded down the sides of the mountain. A brownish-yellow haze came over the region. That sounds enormous, but did anyone get hurt? No, the Volcano Observatory did its job right. And those sensors did their job too? We got much better recordings of the stuff that was going on. It had been 20 years since the volcano's last eruption, and the technology behind the seismometers had improved by a lot. So it's like they could get a much better picture of the earthquakes going on during the eruption. Totally, because at the time Helena was racing around the mountains, there were a lot of things that they didn't know. You can think that you know what's about to happen, and you can go put your sensors out, but then it's anyone's guess of like what you're going to record or if it's going to even erupt. Oh, so it could have erupted when they were on it or not erupted at all? I mean, they didn't know. But with the help of that last-minute sensor delivery, volcanologists can now tell the story of readouts eruption. Volcanoes tend to erupt in the same way every time, so they now have a much better idea of what to expect the next time with readout. So when they smell that rotten egg smell and see those earthquake swarms, they'll know what to do. Helicopter, volcano, go! Now that you've learned about Mount Redoubt, why don't you invent your own volcano? Choose the type of volcano and give it a name. Then tell the story of its eruption. What are the warning signs that it's about to erupt? And what kind of eruption might it have? 
Oh, what a freezing adventure that was. I made it back to the comfort of my cozy cabin, where I think I'll defrost for the rest of the season. Thank you for joining me on another Tumble Road Trip. Lindsay and I will be back with all new episodes beginning on January 20th, but if you can't wait that long, you can pledge just $1 a month on Patreon for our collection of bonus episodes featuring interviews with scientists featured on our show. Thanks to all the scientists who we met on this road trip, including Leo Salas, Kelly Elder, Johanna Varner, and Helena Berman. Sarah Robertson-Lentz is our editor and made all the episode art. Lindsay Patterson wrote and produced the original episodes. Our intern, Elliot Hijaj, wrote the interludes for this episode, along with editing them together and putting in all the sound design. And I'm Marshall Escamilla, and I made all the music for all the episodes you heard. Tumble is a production of Tumble Media. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for stories of science discovery. Thanks so much for listening to that episode. And now that it's over, we've got birthday shoutouts to give to some of our supporters on Patreon. Lachlan, Mom, Dad, and Sissy Cat love listening to Tumble with you, and I'm glad you do. Happy birthday on December 23rd. Dear Ava June, never stop asking questions. You could make the next big discovery, and happy birthday on December 27th. Daniel, Mommy, Daddy, Callie, Nana, Granny, and Papa love you so much, and happy birthday on December 28th. Alice, Mom and Dad are so proud of who you are. Stay curious and keep learning forever. And happy birthday on December 28th, too. Happy ninth birthday on December 29th to Zachary. Mom, Dad, and Frankie love you more, most, infinity, and they want to thank you for inspiring them and making them laugh every single day. William, happy birthday on December 29th with love from Mom, Dad, and Jack. Alan, thanks for all the amazing science adventures. Your two moms love you, and happy birthday on December 30th. Jasper, your family loves you and they're excited to learn more science and have more adventures this year with you. And happy birthday on December 31st. Felix, mom and dad love you Googleplex plus one, which is a lot. And happy birthday on New Year's Day. Anna, you are well on your way to becoming a great scientist just like your big brother Charlie. Happy, happy birthday on January 2nd to Anna Bear from mommy and daddy. Hugo, mom and dad love you so much. Happy birthday on January 3rd. Anish, we hope you always stay curious about everything. Mom, Dad, and Avi always love you, and happy birthday on January 3rd. Ellie, keep up your curiosity and your love for science. Mom and Dad love you, and happy birthday on January 4th. Edison, it is so awesome that you love science. Love from Mom and Dad on your birthday on January 5th. Thanks to all of you and to everyone who supports Tumble on Patreon. If you want to get a birthday shout-out of your own like these fine folks, simply support Tumble on Patreon at the $5 level or higher by going to patreon.com slash tumblepodcast. Once again, that's patreon.com slash tumblepodcast.